Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus. Our text this morning is in the 20th chapter as we are looking at the Ten Commandments. We began last week with the introduction and looking at them more specifically now. If you are using the Bibles there in the chairs, the the text is actually on page 52, though we're going to begin our reading in a few moments on page 51 to, to give us a little bit of the context. But in looking at these commandments that are really a summation of how to love God and then also to love others. It's a painful account that tells of of two unhappy marriages. Two women married about a week apart, yet the content of their marriages was really the contentment was not what they expected. Neither of them found what they were looking for and the joy that you would anticipate that should be there in marriage never really materialized as they had dreamed. There were unexpected events, unplanned circumstances that intruded immediately into the relationships. The one wife was desperately longing for her husband's affection that was consistently absent in the relationship. The other wife desperately longed for a child, but she was unable to conceive. And those basic longings unfolded into maneuvering, into manipulating, and and that just compounded the problems in the marriage. Both women sought for a sense of fulfillment and for affection, for security and love that was ever elusive. Love for an emotionally distant husband, Love from a non-existent child. These two women, these two wives, were sisters. And they were both married to the same man. We're introduced to these ladies in Genesis 29. Leah and Rachel. The daughters of Laban who, and the wives of Jacob. We first meet Rachel as she is tending her father's flock of sheep. And in in Genesis 29, verse 17, it states that that Rachel was very good-looking. She was beautiful in form and face. She had a beautiful face and a beautiful figure. That's what the passage tells us. I, I suspect that she was always getting more attention than her older sister, Leah. The local shepherds, would show her attention and ignore her sister. And you know that had to hurt Leah even if Rachel was oblivious to the disproportionate attention. Well, when, we, when Jacob sees her, he's caught, he, she catches his eye. He's smitten, he's captured, she captures his heart. And her father Laban is pleased with the idea of having Jacob as a son-in-law. So he agrees that in return for seven years of labor, Jacob can marry Rachel. And it says in verse 20 that the time just flew by. That the years seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. That is a devotion that ought to make for a strong marriage. 
to, to have an adoring husband who would work for seven years and it seems like nothing at all, just a few days. It should be the perfect marriage, right? What could possibly go wrong? Well, if you're familiar with the story, you know a lot goes wrong and it happens very quickly. It doesn't go as planned. When the time is up, Jacob comes to Laban and says, you know, I've worked for you and now let me have my bride. And so Laban throws a party and in the process he exchanges daughters. Instead of Jacob getting Rachel, Laban brings Leah. Talk about a wife swap. And Jacob doesn't even realize what happens until the next morning. Now, I never have fully understood that part of the story. But that's what the text tells us. And then Jacob accuses his father-in-law of deceit. And Laban asserts, that's not how we do things around here. Our culture is different. The younger doesn't get married before the older. Now, the underlying issue, if you know the story, if you remember what's happened, Jacob has deceived his own father. He's usurped the blessing that was going to be given to the firstborn, Esau. And in a sense, Jacob is now reaping what he sowed in the past. Or in our modern vernacular, the chickens have come home to roost. But for the women involved, the dreams, the hopes, their concept of the perfect marriage now turns into a daily trial. Rachel, who is deeply loved by Jacob, can't have children. As, as J- Laban says, well, that's not how we do it, but I'll give you Rachel in a week. So now Jacob has two wives. Leah has several children, but doesn't have her husband's love. And you see the, the sorrow and heartache, even as she names her children. The first one, Reuben, meaning now my husband will love me. The second, Simeon, God hears that I am not loved. And Levi, now my husband will be attached to me. And as as Leah has children, Rachel grows jealous. She's angry and becomes embittered and says to Jacob in, in Genesis 30 verse 1, give me children or else I'll die. And when she finally has a son, she's still not satisfied. She names him Joseph which means let him, let God, add another. So with that backdrop of a struggle for satisfaction, I find it interesting that the first mention of idols in the Bible is when Rachel steals the household idols that belong to her father. In the context, times have changed. Jacob has continued to work for Laban, but Laban's attitude has changed toward his father son-in-law, and his daughters. He's become angry and controlling. And Jacob decides it's time to leave. And so he tells his wives, we're going to leave. We're not going to tell your your father. I'm not telling my father-in-law, but we're going to get out of there. And it is during that time that Rachel takes those idols. Why would she do that? Well, obviously she thinks there's something that they can offer And in doing so, she places her family in jeopardy. Because when faced with insecurity, uncertainty, she assumed that somehow her father's gods would protect and bless, but they do just the opposite. 
The truth is, as one person from years ago said, the human heart is a factory of idols. For Rachel, she sought happiness, she sought security, she sought it in having children. For Leah, she wanted love and affection. What is it that you long for this morning? What is it that you would say, give me this or I'll die? Or we may not be that dramatic. That may be a little over the top, but say, you know what? If I had this, then I could be happy. Understanding that our propensity is to seek life away from God, to elevate other things, is really what brings us to the importance of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Last week, we considered the Ten Commandments and, and Jesus' statement in Mark chapter 12. He, he summarized the commandments with the statement that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second commandment is like to that, love your neighbor as yourself. And those two commandments summarized the Ten Commandments. They summarized the two tables of the law. And I want us to consider that first commandment this morning and realize that really the point that we have to understand is the existence of one God, the God of the Bible, requires our unrivaled devotion. That we understand who God is, he deserves our unrivaled attention. And while our text is found in, in Exodus 20, the first three verses, I want to set the stage by taking us back to chapter 19, that we will begin our reading in chapter 19 because it really provides the context and brings to bear the importance of understanding that God should, there should be no other gods before God, that he is supreme. So if you have your Bibles open, follow with me as I begin reading in verse 16 of chapter 19. Exodus 19, verse 16. says, And it came to pass on the third day, in the morning, that there were thunderings and lightnings, and thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the, the whole mountain shaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the Lord answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. Warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Away, get down, and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. 
Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We pray that we would have a proper vision of who you are as revealed in your word. And that we would apply your truth personally. That we would examine our own hearts to make sure that you do have first place. That we truly give you that unrivaled devotion in our hearts, souls, our minds, and with our strength. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In this passage, in this first commandment, we find that when we understand who God is, as he's revealed in his word, that it requires our unrivaled devotion. What we have just read, what takes place in the giving of the law and coming to Mount Sinai is one of the greatest events in Israel's history. If you, if you know the backdrop, you know that Israel's been re- delivered from hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt and is now camped at the side of Mount Sinai, and, and here God reveals himself. There's several days of preparation that take place, and, and then these atmospheric disturbances with the cloud, with the fire, with the rumblings of, of the mountain, all of this taking place that, that reveal the character of God in an amazing way. And there's several things that we can learn from this practically, but I want us to see how does God reveal himself? What can we see, first of all, how God reveals himself? The first thing that we see in this passage is he reveals himself as a personal God. That God is a personal God. It says God speaks. He says, I am the Lord, your God. Notice the word am is in italics. It's indicating it's, it's provided to help with the translation. It gives us readability. It's literally, I, the Lord, your God, or I being the Lord, your God. God is not some kind of a divine watchmaker who wound up the universe and then just let it run and, and is hands off. God is, is actively involved in the lives of his people. He's actively involved in the lives of, lives of Israel here. He's brought them out. In fact, it says back in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 19 that they are a treasured possession. They are a holy nation to him. And he cares for his people. He cares for us. This isn't just Israel. This is us that, that we can cast our cares upon him because he cares. He's not just a force, a power that must be appeased or pleased. He's a personal God. But he is a powerful God. And that's the second thing that we see. Not only is he personal, he is powerful. Chapter 19, as we read, describes an impressive display of of environmental disturbances. The thick cloud, the brilliant lightning, the rolling thunder, the earthquake as the the mountain shakes. And then there's this loud trumpet that, that the million plus people that are gathered there all hear. This is an amazing scene. And all of this came after Israel had already seen God's power in delivering them from from the slavery of Egypt. Back in Exodus chapter 5, Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh in Egypt and tell him that God has said, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And in Exodus 5 verse 2, Pharaoh's response is, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? To let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Now that was a very foolish statement. Because God will introduce himself. 
Pharaoh says, who's God? God says, well, let me introduce myself. And what follows are ten plagues. And it's interesting because those plagues not only show God's power, they discredit the gods of Egypt. Each plague had a specific way of dealing with the Egyptian gods. The Nile was considered sacred. Hopi was the god of the Nile. And it turns to blood. That's the very first plague. Instead of being a place of life, it becomes a place of death. There was a a frog-headed god or... Hatket, which was the goddess of fertility that, that had a frog's head. And then there's the plague of frogs. Gib was the god of earth, and now the earth brings forth lice, the dust of the earth. And over and over, the plagues are dealing with specific gods. Ra, the sun god. But the sun god could not penetrate the darkness that brought, God brought over Egypt, even though there was still light for Israel. And then finally, that tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. See, Pharaoh was considered the greatest Egyptian god. He was considered the son of Ra. And Pharaoh had killed the sons of of Israel. How many of those who had served in slavery, slavery had been killed by Pharaoh? And now the death of the firstborn comes, including his own family. All of this is God introducing himself. And all of this takes place over several months. And the death of their firstborn then results in that freedom as, as Pharaoh says, leave, go. And so they leave. And then, and then the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea and the final destruction of Israel's army. And Israel had seen all of this. This is the power of God. This is all backdrop over the several months that those plagues had taken place. And now several months to come to Mount Sinai. And so for this to take place, as one commentator said, this magnificent event will be unexcelled until the Lord Jesus returns again in a blazing fire. Because it says in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7, And when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do we understand why it's important to have no other gods before him? Because he's a powerful God. He is worthy of worship. He's worthy of our adoration. In fact, the first four commandments are going to talk about how do we properly worship God. See, worship must recognize God's majestic transcendence, that he's separate from creation, and and his moral transcendence, he's separate from corruption. This is the holiness of God. But I want us to see as well, God is a gracious God. He is a delivering God. That's what he says. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That God is a delivering God. That that through Scripture, the deliverance from Egypt is going to be used to demonstrate God's continuing care. In Haggai chapter 2 verse 5, it states that. That he will provide security for the future. In Judges 2, 1. And they can anticipate blessing. In Psalm 81, verse 10, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide. I will fill it. Because God is powerful, he can provide. Because he is gracious, we can expect that. His grace is greater than all of our sin. 
And understand that when you are saved, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've been delivered from bondage, out of the house of bondage. The bondage of sin, you have freedom in Christ. He's our Savior. That we are saved and safe. That He is a personal Savior. And so this is how He reveals Himself. But when we consider this command, it's very obvious that certain things are prohibited. So, so what is prohibited by this command? You shall have no other gods before me. And that's the second thing I want us to consider from this. Now, it's, it's sometimes missed, and we, we lose this because it says, you shall have no other gods. It's singular. The King James said, thou shalt have no other gods. It wasn't just Israel in general or Israel as a nation. It was every individual, and that applies to us. So what is prohibited by this command? First of all, atheism. I am the Lord. God is. You know, the Bible doesn't take a lot of time proving the existence of God. It's assumed. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Because the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 19 tells us that. Romans 1, 20, the creation reveals the attributes of God and His glory so that people are without excuse. So this prohibits atheism. 1 Peter 3, 5 says that people willingly forget God. It also prohibits agnosticism. The atheist says there is no God. The agnostic says, well, I'm not sure. Well, there is a God, so you can be sure. And so this is prohibited. You know, back in 1993, there was a a poll done, and almost 70% of American adults said, I know God really exists, and I have no doubts about it. That same question was asked in 2021, and the number is under 50%. Well, I'm not sure. In fact, the the largest group that's increasing in our country is what they call the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, that they don't have any religion. There's a, well, we're just not sure God exists. Well, he does, and this prohibits it. Polytheism is a third thing that is prohibited. That's the worship of many gods. You can't simply add God to your God collection. When it says You shall have no other gods before me. It doesn't mean that he gets first place in line. It it literally means before my face. Well, God's face is everywhere. He sees all. There are to be no other gods. So it's not just enough to say, well, we'll add them to our God collection. When we were in Hong Kong and, and then in Singapore and going by the Hindu temple with all of their gods and their willingness to add another god. No, polytheism is prohibited. No other gods before my face. Pantheism is prohibited. The worshiping everything as God. The idea that, well, he's just everything and everywhere and everything. God is everywhere, but he's not everything. And, and so much of this is coming into our culture. The worship of nature and the environment. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord that is my name and my glory will not be given to another. It also prohibits syncretism. This is the mixing of the, the true God with false religions, with other religions. 
And there's an example of this just over a couple of chapters. Let me have you turn to chapter 32 of Exodus. Many of you are very familiar with this incident, but it's, it's syncretism. It's the golden calf incident. And as Moses is up on the mountain, understanding we've already considered the context, we've considered the setting of all that took place, and God calls Moses up, and then Moses doesn't come down for a while, and Israel gets impatient. And it says in verse 1, Now the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down to the mountain. They gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us, For as for this Moses man, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. They said, Moses hasn't come back. Make us gods. We don't know what's happened. They become impatient. So Aaron tells them, give me your gold. They give him gold. And it it tells us in verses 4 and 5 that he molded a calf. And then he declares this. This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So he's saying this carved image is the true God. And then in verse 5 he says, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And so the next day people gather. Now now understand what's taking place here. Aaron is not saying we're going to worship a false God. He's saying we're going to worship the true God in a different way. And so the next day, the people offer burnt offerings, they bring peace offerings, and then it says in verse 6, they sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to celebrate. And it's real, in the wording here, it's speaking of a wild sensuality. This is a, a, a wild party that takes place. And they said it's all to the Lord. Well, obviously, God's not pleased. This is not behavior that honors him. And he restates the claim of of Aaron that has been made. This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And as he says this to Moses, he tells Moses, step aside, I will destroy them and make of you a great nation. And Moses intercedes for Israel. He pleads with God, interceding, and God spares them. And all the time that Moses is interceding for them, they are involved in all sorts of debauchery and claiming its worship. And so Moses comes down, he confronts Aaron, and Aaron says, it's not my fault. You know what a pain these people are. Verses 22 and 23, it's what he's saying. And then he says, you know, I just threw the gold in the fire and, and out came this calf. It's not my doing. Now, isn't that what we do? It's like, it's not really my fault. All of this was claimed to be worship of God. Just because somebody says it's to the Lord does not make it acceptable. Just because somebody says, well, we worship God this way does not mean God is pleased. Biblical worship must be in spirit and in truth. That's how God seeks people to worship him according to John chapter 4 verses 23 and 24. And we can get it confused by mixing tradition with worship and just saying, well, this is how we want to worship God. Or as often happens in evangelical Christianity today, mix entertainment with worship and say, well, this is what we really like. And it makes me feel close to God. Well, I'm sure these people had a feeling too. But the real question is, does it bring us close to a holy, righteous God? We can can easily justify 
There's another situation, and you don't need to turn there, but in in 2 Samuel chapter 6, it provides another amazing scene of worship. There's great rejoicing, there's lots of music, there's celebration, there's 30,000 choice men of Israel that are gathered together because this is a very special occasion. They are bringing the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, back to Jerusalem. They've got harps, they've got tambourines, they've got cymbals, they've got 30,000 people. All of this is going on. It's It's an exciting time. But at one point, the oxen that are pulling the cart begin to stumble, and a man named Uzzah reaches up and touches the Ark of the Covenant, and God strikes him dead. Wow. Does that seem harsh to us? I mean, you know, Uzzah, you know, wasn't his heart in the right place? No, it wasn't. Because if his heart's not where God tells it that it's to be, it's not the right place. He was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. He may have been operating with spirit, but not with truth. Because God had given very specific guidelines as to how the ark was to be moved, and that was being violated. And so with all the the excitement and all the music and all the celebration and the joy, it was not doing it God's way. And while his motives may have been sincere, he was sincerely wrong because he thought he was cleaner than the ground. He failed to see the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. See, the God of the Bible requires unrivaled devotion in proper worship. One pastor and seminary professor put it this way, True worship happens when we set our minds and attention and hearts affection on the Lord, praising him for who he is and for what he has done. Our hearts affection, our minds attention. Love him with all of our heart, with our soul, with all of our mind. So how do we do that? How do we demonstrate that kind of a love for God? And that's the third thing I want us to consider. Consider this morning. How is love for God demonstrated? The first area is we respect God speaking. Notice over and over in this passage, it comes up that God speaks. We saw that back in chapter 19. It begins in, in chapter 20, and God spoke. When God speaks, we have to listen. If, if we're going to praise him for who he is, we must listen and respond when he speaks. So we we need to know his word. Do you read his word? Do you listen to his word? Are are you in God's word personally? We we seek to come together to hear the preaching and that we we can as a church family worship the Lord, but we need to be doing it individually too. Do you apply it practically? You know, communication is necessary for a healthy relationship. So we respect his, his speaking. We rejoice in his salvation, secondly. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. As I've already mentioned, if you're saved, you've been brought out of bondage. Romans 6 talks about that, the the bondage of sin, that we're set free. Do you remember the joy of your salvation? Do you remember what God has saved you from? You know, unfortunately, Israel's already forgotten what God has done for them. Back in Exodus chapter 17, verse 3, is, as they're in the, making the trek to Mount Sinai and they're in the wilderness and they become thirsty and it says in verse 3, and the people complained against Moses and said, why is it that you brought us out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They're in essence saying we were better off in slavery. 
And when they reach the promised land, they they hear about the challenges, that there are walled cities, there are giants in the land, but God has promised this land. But in Numbers chapter 14, they, they rebel against and said, if only we had died in the land of Egypt or in the wilderness. How quickly they forget. Unless we point our finger at Israel, how often do we do the same thing? How easy is it to forget? Well, what God did in the past when we face a problem in the present. Our circumstances don't go as we planned. The situation changes. The challenges come before us. He's rescued us. We're saved and we're safe. The third thing that we see is that we respond with daily submission. You shall have no other gods before me. What is it that you have to have? Give me this or I'll die. Or at least give me this, and then I'll really be happy. Life will be good. Things will go as I planned. You know, the pull of sin is subtle. It's easy to get pragmatic and to justify why we don't obey God. You know, we, we see how, how this idol can help us. If I, if I had that, it would make me happy. And doesn't God want me to be happy? I mean, this goes all the way back to the garden. Adam and Eve, as Eve saw the tree that was good for food, it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, it would help her. The, the temptation that you, you can have the knowledge of good and evil, it was attractive. God made the tree attractive. He made me to want to be wise. Doesn't God want me to be wise? It's pleasant to look at. God made it that way. It's easy to justify. And she justified her sin. In this lush garden, with plenty of food, she ate the one food that was forbidden. Say, well, you know, it's it's not the environment. Because we see in Matthew, Jesus is tempted in a barren wilderness. He's fasted for 40 days. He has a very legitimate hunger that would come as as a human. He was total man as well as total God. And he's tempted to make the stones into bread. He could have rationalized. Well, don't I have a right to not be hungry? I mean, this appetite is part of the human makeup, and food isn't wrong. But he refused to use his divine attributes to remove the human craving. He was tempted to fulfill a legitimate desire, but he did not sin. He did not give in to the desire of the flesh in an inappropriate way. But isn't that how we justify? Well, God made me this way and he gave me this desire and he doesn't want me to be unhappy, does he? And we can pragmatically turn our hearts to an idol. See, the word of God has to be in our hearts. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and following, which is actually what Jesus quoted, what we considered last week from, from Mark 11, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Is God's word in our hearts? Oh, it may be in our head, but does it motivate our decisions? We have to know it because we're not going to be influenced by what we don't know. But what really has the deciding vote in your life? Are we responding in submission to the word? If God says it, I'm going to obey it. 
And when we do that, then how do we demonstrate that love? We rest in God for security. And that's the fourth thing that we see. I am the Lord your God. I've already mentioned this is a personal statement. Deuteronomy 6 addressed to Israel as a nation, the, the, the Lord our God is one, but then it shifts again to the singular. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God. We, we, we use you, but that can be singular or plural. But the text is very specific in the, the Hebrew, that it's singular. And that ought to be a, a blessing to us, that we can trust him. He cares for you personally. So does God have first place? That there are no other gods before his face? Would we say, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus? Is that our heart's desire? So, so how do we know? How can we tell how we're doing in this area? Let me just give us some, some areas that we can do personal evaluation. It's been said that an idol is anything to which we ascribe the abilities or attributes of God. What we think will satisfy, make us happy, provide security, bring joy, peace, fulfillment. For Rachel, it was grabbing those household gods and taking them. We have to ask ourselves, first of all, what captures your heart and affections? You know, is there something you love more than God? Is there something that you think will bring blessing in your life? Well, if I do this, then my life will be good. What is it that you love or fear or serve? Is there something that controls you more than God? Is it, some, it could be something good that has a wrong priority. I mean, is it that job that brings satisfaction or a hobby or, or maybe getting a certain grade or, or having a certain amount in a bank account? Maybe it's a person, a spouse like Leah or a child like Rachel. Give me children or I'll die. Give me my husband's affection and then I'll be happy. You know, it could be ministry for those of us that are serving that we get so caught up in serving that we lose sight of the one we are serving. And we fail to worship in spirit. Secondly, what, what causes you to react emotionally? You know, we don't tend to get emotional about things that don't matter to us. You know, what is it that really excites us or really upsets us? And, and it's not wrong to have emotions. We ought to. We ought to rejoice in certain things and thank the Lord. And there are things we ought to sorrow in loss but still trust the Lord. So it's not wrong to have strong feelings for what matters to us, but we need to make sure that it's in proportion. That it's, it's not something that is taking us away from God. When, when Rachel made that statement, give me children or else I'll die, it was a good indication that that was out of, out of the right priority in her life. It wasn't wrong for her to want children. That was a, that was a good desire but to say that is the only thing that will satisfy is to say that God isn't enough. And we need to be careful. We need to be careful that our children, our grandchildren, do not become idols. And that we excuse sin or we condone wrong because it's our kid. We have to be careful that they don't get preeminence. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. 
What is it that you think will bring satisfaction? Or this is what gives a good life. You know, if I just have that job and I work hard enough and I get the promotion, then I will have success and it will be great. Or if I eat right and exercise right and I, and I, I, I have all of that, then I'll have good health and I'll never get sick. Or that person, that friend, that person will meet my needs. Maybe it's money or possessions. You know, what is it that we truly treasure? Because where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. As I mentioned, I appreciate so much the generosity of, of Tri-City Baptist Church. It allows us to, to see ministry go forward, to, to advance missions. And, and we have a generous church, but are you a generous person? You know, we can hide behind what others are doing. Are we investing for eternity? How do you react emotionally? Because when our treasure is touched, there's an emotional reaction. Number three, what one thing in life are you least willing to give up? You know, life doesn't always go as planned. I'm not sure if life ever goes as we planned. Rachel had a wonderful situation before her. She had a fiancé who loved her and was excited, and, and then everything gets messed up. You know, the, the, her goal of a loving husband with lots of children and a picket fence around her tent just didn't happen. You know, her, her marriage didn't turn out like anybody expected or really wanted. Problems with her father. He created a mess. Her culture. Jacob's past deception. And that marriage came with a lot of baggage, including an extra wife and two other servants. You know, maybe it's not your marriage, but your occupation or your health or your life goals. What is it that we say, I, I, I can't give that up? Are we willing to say, Lord, I, I want this, but I want you more? And that's really the fourth question then. Would you be willing to trust God completely if that, that thing that you are least willing to give up were taken away? No, we don't want that. We, we, and, and we all know the right answer intellectually. We, we know how we should answer this question. But what's our gut reaction? I mean, that's what I have to ask myself. I, I know what the Bible says. I, I, I'm a pastor. I know the right answer. But that's not necessarily where my reaction is. And I have to ask, do I love the Lord with more than just the mental acknowledgement, but also with my heart, soul, and strength? Because false gods don't bring lasting satisfaction. When, when Rachel stole those gods from her father and hid them, she put her family in jeopardy. She got away with it. But in Genesis 35, Jacob tells his wives and his whole household, put away the strange, the false gods. And he takes them, he boxes them up, and he buries them under an oak tree. And apparently Rachel got rid of those gods that she had trusted. I assume, I hope, I, I want to believe that she learned that God is always enough. I hope that Leah quit trusting the external things that, that she could trade for gaining the affection of her husband. And we read that back in Genesis 30. I'm not going into the whole story today, but I hope she too learned that God is enough. You know, the problem is our, our idols don't stay buried. And so the Apostle John, in his first letter, concludes with these words. The very last statement of that letter is, Little children, 
keep yourselves from idols. Our idols aren't the type we sit on a shelf normally, but they might be in our garage. They might be another person. They might be that goal. Have we learned that God is enough? When you are worried, angry, fearful, frustrated, where do you turn? Is it friends on social media? You know, we, we don't need to reach for an idol on the shelf. It might be online. But Jesus said, come to me, all you who are laboring and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Have you come to him for deliverance? Do you know that joy? These are hard questions. These are hard questions for me as I study and prepare and say, Man, Lord, I know what your word says, but it's so easy for those idols to not be buried. That if I have that, oh, I'm not going to die without it, but that's what would really bring happiness. That would bring satisfaction. Really, the question we have to ask is, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart? Does he have your heart this morning? Is he your savior? Have you come to him and been delivered from sin? Are we seeking to serve him? Because the existence of one God, the God of the Bible, requires your unrivaled devotion. Love him with all your heart. Have no other gods before his face. Can you say that this morning? Let's pray together.